Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics. I'm Major Alan Abrams, and I'm a defense counsel in the Air Force's Trial Defense Division. Inspired by the new Top Gun movie, our normal host, Daryl Johnson, is somewhere on the highway to the danger zone. So I'm back for this go-round. Daryl will be back soon with his typically brilliant insights. Before we get into this week's episode, I'll note, like we always do, that this podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial. The ideas are those of the presenters and do not represent the official views of the United States government, Department of Defense, Department of the Air Force, or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interest of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. For this week's episode, we're going to briefly note a couple of cases of interest that recently petitioned the Supreme Court for review. Then we'll talk about the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces decision in United States versus Tate. For our trial skills segment, we'll talk about the present sense impression exception to the prohibition on hearsay. Over at SCOTUS blog, they've got a weekly column authored by Andrew Hamm called Petitions of the Week, and two recent petitions for a grant of certiorari are particularly noteworthy. The first is Centeno versus Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. For those unfamiliar with the case, you might be wondering what a case from Puerto Rico has to do with the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Well, I've got a one-word answer for you. Ramos. Yes, Ramos versus Louisiana, the 2020 Supreme Court decision about the requirement that criminal convictions be by a unanimous verdict. Puerto Rico got rid of non-unanimous verdicts in the wake of the Ramos decision, but Puerto Rico's Supreme Court interpreted Ramos as also requiring that any acquittal be unanimous. The Supreme Court of Oregon in State v. Ross said that non-unanimous votes for acquittals were fine under Ramos. If the Supreme Court grants the petition and ultimately agrees with Puerto Rico's Supreme Court, that would likely have a big impact on how, if at all, the requirements of Ramos might be applied to the military justice system. The second case is Blankenship versus United States, which has to do with whether the defense has to do any independent due diligence in order to obtain exculpatory evidence that the prosecution is otherwise required to provide under Brady versus Maryland. This case won't change the requirements and rules for Courts Martial 701A2 and 701A6 that the prosecution must provide the defense with evidence relevant to defense preparation and that the prosecution must also provide evidence and discovery that is exculpatory, extenuating, or mitigating. Although a narrowing of Brady requirements at the Supreme Court could drive similar changes in the rules applicable to courts martial proceedings. You can see an example of that happening in the past in the case of United States v. Finch, 64MJ118, which is a 2006 case that addressed whether law enforcement had to provide notice to defense counsel of law enforcement's intent to interrogate a suspect when the law enforcement agent knew that the suspect was represented by defense counsel. The Finch case discussed how, while that used to be the rule, based on some older Supreme Court precedents, the protections to be to a represented accused were narrowed in Military Rule of Evidence 305 to fit with similar narrowing and protections arising in a pair of Supreme Court decisions. In other words, if the Supreme Court narrows it, it may lead to a change in the rules for courts martial. Rewinding from potentially important future cases to a case of CAF present, the recent decision in United States v. Tate dealt with the issue of what to do when the recording and in turn transcription of a verbatim record goes awry. In Tate, this issue came up following a provident guilty plea when everyone showed up for day two of sentencing, only to find that everything from day one of sentencing was not recorded. 
They lost a rights advisement to the accused, the prosecution's presentation of documents and witness testimony, presentation of a victim impact statement, the defense's first witness, and some of the presentation of the defense's documentary evidence. The appeal took up two main issues. First, whether the transcript that resulted from the case was substantially verbatim. And second, if not, whether the judge's remedy cure the substantial omission from the transcript. Ultimately, the court reached three main determinations related to these questions. First, because the sentence included 12 months or more of jail time and a bad conduct discharge, a verbatim transcript was required. Second, because the day one that was lost was quantitatively and qualitatively so much, the record was not substantially verbatim. And third, the trial judge totally messed up what he was supposed to do to try to fix that. We're not going to go too deep into the weeds here on how the trial judge erred because the rules for courts martial have since changed and made more explicit what should happen in circumstances like this, although it's left plenty of questions up in the air as well, and that's what we're going to talk about. The bottom line is that the trial judge started down the path of what the appeal assumed without deciding was a permissible option. Specifically, the trial judge said he was basically starting over on the sentencing proceedings. But the trial judge committed jurisdictional error, meaning prejudice didn't really matter, when he tried to do the defense a solid. Learning from day one of sentencing, the prosecution tried to do a better job with their sentencing case with a second bite at the apple. The trial judge said he wasn't going to consider anything that the government presented that wasn't actually presented on the lost day one of sentencing. That was wrong because no one reviewing the record can actually know what happened on the lost day one, and therefore what would be new in relation to the lost day one, because the recording from day one of sentencing was gone. It didn't exist. You might be wondering at this point what you're supposed to take away from a case that, as I said a few moments ago, applied rules that no longer are in effect. Well, in order to address that, we need to talk about the new rules that took effect in 2019. Like in the Tate case, we're still starting the analysis by asking whether the record is substantially verbatim by looking at how much was lost and its importance. This is one of those instances where the rule says verbatim, but really what we mean is substantially verbatim. And when the record fails to be substantially verbatim, the text of Rule for Courts Martial 1112-D3 provides four options in the actual text of the rule. And these weren't in place before when the Tate case was really coming up through the trial process. Option one is to reconstruct the affected portion of the record. Option two is to dismiss the affected specifications. Option three is to reduce the sentence. And option four, which the rule says or, declare a mistrial as to the specifications, quote, if the error was raised by a motion or on appeal by the defense, end quote. But wait, the discussion that follows the text of that same rule seems to provide a fifth option, which is to start over from the point where the recording stopped. And that's what the trial judge in Tate tried to do, but failed. But wait again. Rule for Courts Martial 915A permits a trial judge to grant a mistrial of all the charges, some of the charges, the whole case, or the proceedings after findings, quote, as a matter of discretion, when such action is manifestly necessary in the interest of justice, end quote. So the big takeaway from Tate is that there will be a lot to work through when recordings don't work right under the current iteration of Rule for Courts Martial 1112D3. Questions that come to mind based on this case and this new text are, one, when the rule talks about a mistrial, quote, if the error was raised by a motion or on appeal by the defense, end quote, does that otherwise limit the judge's authority to grant a mistrial under Rule for Courts Martial 915A? 
two, when the rule talks about a mistrial, if the error was raised by a motion or on appeal by the defense, does that mean that the other options, including dismissal of the affected specifications, are no longer available to the military judge because the error was raised by the defense? If so, does that mean defense counsel staying silent could get a better result than by saying something about the error? Dismissal is no conditional phrase about if the error was raised, so it seems to always be on the table and is definitely the best outcome possible for the defense. Of course, you're also thinking about, well, the conjunction. We've got or instead of and. On the other hand, defense counsel saying anything in the vein of a motion or appeal could be read as only being able to obtain a mistrial, which would likely result in further proceedings under Rule for Courts Martial 915C2, even in the face of opposition by the defense. Three. What happens if the judge wants to declare a mistrial, but the defense, A, points out the error, but B, refuses to move the court for remedy? In other words, the defense identifies the error, but not with a motion. Four, in making a decision under rule for courts martial 1112 D3, if a judge elects to reconstruct the record, could the judge do that by starting over from the part where the recording stopped? It seems like the answer would be no, because Tate distinguishes between starting over which it calls starting anew versus reconstructing the record because this whole starting over process is clearly left out of the text listing permissible options in the current rule. And also because reconstructing the missing portion basically requires everyone to agree on what was lost. There seem to be a whole bunch of arguments on each side of these questions. It's a heck of a lot that's going to have to be worked out. The most conservative route for judges going forward would seem to be to reconstruct the record, or if that's not possible, declare a mistrial and reattack with further proceedings, assuming those proceedings are ordered by the convening authority. But ultimately, there's room for arguments either way, so argue what you think the law supports and what's in the best interest of your client. Turning to our trial skills segment, we're going to talk about the present sense impression, exception to the hearsay rule. That is exception number one, 8031. The exception is for, quote, a statement declaring or explaining an event or condition made while or immediately after the declarant perceived it. Breaking that down, to meet the exception, you need, one, some kind of event, two, a witness with personal knowledge of the event, three, a statement made at the same time or immediately after the event or condition, and four, that same statement is about that event or condition. One way to think about this rule is with your own mental Venn diagram showing how it is both similar and different from the surrounding rules for excited utterances and then existing state of mind. So a present sense impression can be an excited utterance as well as then existing state of mind evidence. Here's an example, right? You've got two people and they're fighting. One of them shouts, I am so angry that you are hitting me right now. The declarant who's being hit is describing an event as it happens, as well as their emotional state while also under the stress and excitement of the fight. But these rules don't always line up the same. The time requirement is one big difference. A present sense impression has to be at the same time or immediately after whatever is prompting the statement. That's similar to the then existing state of mind evidence. But an excited utterance can be long after, depending on how long the impact of the stressful trigger lasts. Similarly, another difference is whether there needs to be an emotional component. An excited utterance requires an exciting, triggering event. A present sense impression does not. It could be as basic as someone sitting on his porch watching a neighbor walk the dog and saying out loud, Bob is walking the dog. By contrast, the subject matter of a then-existing state of mind sort of statement has to do with that emotional or mental internal component. 
but it doesn't have to relate to an exciting triggering event, and it has an internal focus, whereas the present sense impression is largely externally focused. Now, one of the things that we've regularly talked about in this podcast is where you need to focus the depth of your questions to really build up the weight of the point you're trying to make. When we're talking about present sense impressions, the biggest thing to hammer home is to make the declarant out to be basically the play-by-play person, calling the game from up in the broadcast booth. That means stressing the timing, how they're there at just the right time, seeing everything in real time. But it also means stressing their view and ability to have personal knowledge. These two factors, the whole reason this evidence is admissible. So you'll build and build around the person who made the statement, being there at just the right moment, setting the scene, building the statement itself to cap it all off. Let's walk through an example of this whole present sense impression business by riffing off of an earlier example that we've used earlier in our podcast series. So we've got Airman Smith. He's at a party. He's playing flip cup. He sees what appears to be an assault in basically the back of the dorm where, of course, this party is, and says something about it out loud. The witness on the stand is Airman Mitchell. Aaron Mitchell, were you at the party in Airman Jones' dorm room that night? Yes, I was. I'd like to orient you to Airman Smith and something he said. Without getting into the substance of it, did Airman Smith say something about what he saw between Airman Thompson and Airman McNulty? Yes, he did. What was happening when he made that statement? We were in the middle of playing flip cup. Who else was present? Me, Airman Smith, Airman Abel, Airman Klein, Claire, and Joyce. What about Airman Thompson and Airman McNulty? I didn't know that they were there until Airman Smith said something about them. They weren't playing with us. I think they were in another room. Was there any music or TV on at this party? There was some music on. I don't remember if it was coming through the TV or someone's phone. Did that music get in the way of you hearing Airman Smith? No. Why not? I was right next to Airman Smith. How close? Maybe six inches. I could hear him loud and clear. We were still talking over the music. When, in relation to playing flip cup, did Airman Smith make this remark? It was between rounds. We had already done a few. I don't remember how many. How did Airman Smith look? He looked fine. Was he slurring his words? No. Had you had conversations with Airman Smith before? Yes. Was the way he was talking any different from your earlier conversations? No. Could you see into the back room of the dorm? No, my view is blocked. From what you could observe, could Airman Smith see the back room of the dorm? Yeah, based on where he was standing, there wouldn't have been the same stuff in the way. What did Airman Smith say about what he saw in the back room between Airman Thompson and Airman McNulty? What did Airman Smith say about what he saw in the back room between Airman Thompson and Airman McNulty? He said, holy cow, Tommy is wailing on McNulty. Now, this was a long example. But it doesn't have to be that long in practice. It really all depends on the facts of your case. And remember, you can build up some of the foundation through multiple witnesses. You could have one witness put the declarant at the scene and another establish the ability to actually see and perceive the event so as to gain the requisite personal knowledge. Now, all this evidence can be problematic because it is basically contemporaneous with the event at issue. It remains subject to attack through cross-examination. So, when you're conducting a cross-examination of, say, a government witness who testified about a present sense impression, it will likely challenge your capacity to be creative in thinking about not only what the statement presents, but also what it doesn't present. One option that you can go with is going after the timing about it not being on point with the event at issue. And of course, if you can demonstrate the timing doesn't line up, you may be able to object to the testimony coming in at all. In 
for that reason, there's likely more and better options if the threshold for immiscibility of the present sense impression is already met. So, for instance, you can target the declarant's ability to accurately perceive what happened. That could be because they're like the old lady and my cousin Vinny who can't see. Or it could be because there's a bunch of other stuff going on that interfered with their ability to perceive. This raises basically an accuracy issue and in turn goes to the weight of the evidence. You can see that in the scenario we just gave based on the testimony about the view that Airman Smith likely had, as if those six inches really made all the difference. You can also target the ability of the witness to accurately perceive what the declarant said on those same grounds. You can see that with the loud music and many people at the party, plus drinking in the scenario that we just walked through. You can target omissions in the statement itself. To use our last example, what does wailing entail? Or to use our other example, take our statement from earlier, Bob is walking the dog. That doesn't say that Bob is walking his dog. That doesn't say that the dog is on or off a leash. It doesn't say that the dog is red, black, white, brown, or spotted. That doesn't tell you the dog's breed. And those details, translated to your own case, may matter. You can also target the ambiguity of the statement itself, as there may be multiple interpretations to whatever was said. This is similar to the tactic we just discussed. Basically, you're asking the witness, you didn't know whether the clarent meant X or Y. However, that's a fine line to walk during cross-examination, and it risks relinquishing some control to the witness. So it may be an avenue that's better left for argument as opposed to taking up with the witness. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you again for listening, and I hope it was helpful. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. Heck, if you want to help make this podcast, that's welcome. You can email me at allen.abrams.1 at us.af.mil. That's A-L-L-E-N dot A-B-R-A-M-S dot one at us.af.mil. Or you can email Daryl Johnson at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for everything you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases.